knew that a meeting with Jiggershaw Panera would alter the course of my work. In today's Greenlight episode, I will speak with Jigger about how he was so ahead of the curve when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, why not having mentors is a huge sign of weakness, and how he has applied lessons learned from Sun Edison and Generate Capital. Thanks for tuning in to the Greenlight. Now let's dive in. I'm Catherine McLean, founder and CEO of Dylan Green, and today I have with me Jigger Shaw. Uh, Jigger's the co-founder and president of Generate Capital. Thanks so much for joining us, Jigger. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself for those couple of people who may not know. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people don't know me. I have been in the energy space for a long time and uh, probably most known for starting Sun Edison back in 2003 and then most recently co-founding Generate Capital in 2014 with my colleague, Scott Jacobs and Matan Friedman. Great. So last week, there was quite a soiree for the uh, Clean Energy for Biden inaugural ball. And I didn't realize until I went to the event that it was your brainchild. So I'm dying to know, A, what made you think of it? And B, how you thought you'd pull it off virtually? Well, I really enjoy a party. So for those people who don't know, I really believe that after working super hard, people need to celebrate. And so I thought about it because I had a role in planning the 2008 and 2012 balls for Obama. And, you know, we had, had to had to really push people to consider it because a lot of people said, uh, you know, we're so busy, we're so tired, we really want to just relax. And I was like, I think people are going to want to party. So um, <laughs> thank goodness they gave us permission to do it. And then I was able to get Lynn Abramson at, at Clean Energy Business Network mm-hmm. to help and Andrea Lukey and, you know, it went great, but it uh, was a lot of hard work. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it was a great event. So I want to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship. Did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Was there like a certain age where you were like working for people, not for me? I want to do my own thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a good question and not necessarily an easy answer. I'd say my dad was an entrepreneur, right? I mean, he's a physician, but he started his own practice and opened three offices and did all that stuff. So I watched him growing up and how much hard work it was and how he came late from the office and all those things and the sacrifices he had to make. And, you know, and, and in terms of like HR and like some of the things with entrepreneurship you don't really understand is you have to like pay for people's health care, right? You have to actually manage their benefits. I mean, like all that stuff also is part of it. I think the the one thing I would say is that the whole not wanting to work for other people thing, I find to be an old trope. It is absolutely true that some people don't like bosses. It also is true that that doesn't make them a good entrepreneur. That to me, entrepreneurship is about actually having an idea and wanting to make it a reality and believing that you and your idea and your vision are worth pursuing. Because I think there's a lot of people who I meet who just want to be an entrepreneur and they all have just bad ideas. And when people tell them they have bad ideas, they're like, okay, fine. I'll just give me another idea. I'm like, that's not how it works. You have to actually find an idea that speaks to you. That is truly a good idea. And then you have to go out and do it. What did you learn from Sun Edison that you carried with you to generate? Yeah. I mean, my life has been a pretty straight through line at this point. I mean, I figured out that people just didn't want to take the money that was sitting in their 401k account or their checking account or whatever, and use it for clean energy. They just right. didn't. 
right? They always had something that was super important to them, whether it was sending their kid to summer camp or buying a new car that they needed to do with that money. And you needed to be able to finance clean energy. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to be their first priority, even though people cared. And that has stayed true to my belief since the beginning of my journey in the clean energy sector. And so Sun Edison was a clearly a manifestation of that around the power purchase agreement. But Generate Capital is the same, right? We basically believe that infrastructure has to be sold as a service and that the technologies are now so cost-effective that sustainability wins. It's cheaper, it's better for you, better for the planet, and a better product. But it's not gonna be the number one priority for the CFO of a company that they would rather buy a competitor. They'd rather buy a new building. They'd rather expand their geography than make their existing systems more efficient, right? And buy LED lights or whatever it is, right? They need financing. and. So I do believe that business model innovation and moving infrastructure to infrastructure as a service has been sort of my through line that I was able to prove at Sun Edison. Mentorship. So there's a lot of talk about mentorship, the importance of mentorship. I'm sure you've mentored lots of people in your career. And I was thinking the other day, I wonder if Jigger has a mentor. Do you ever get too old or too wise to have a mentor? No. I mean, I think, frankly, it is a huge sign of weakness if people don't have a mentor. And I don't have a mentor. I have many mentors. I would say that, and they're not necessarily always older than me. There are a lot of people who just have a certain set of insights and a certain set of experiences that I can learn from. Right. right. Whether it's Richard Kaufman, who is the current chair of our board at Generate Capital, uh, former energy czar of New York, or whether it's Richard Harkrader, who, you know, was an investor who decided not to invest in Sun Edison when I first pitched him, but has been a good friend ever since. Or Mike Miller, who was longtime CFO in the auto leasing industry and just has taught me so much about how that whole system works. Or there's a lot of like former politicians who've been mentors of mine. Like in general, I'd say that I have been very deferential and understanding that I have a very narrow niche set of strengths and that work fits into a greater whole, which, you know, then completes projects, right? Whether it's I have to get political support, government assistance. You need to set up the rules of the game. You need to be able to navigate Wall Street. You need to be able to deal with community relations. There are a lot of people with expertise in all those areas. And I have just been floored at how many of them have been willing to share their expertise with me. It's really interesting. So talking a little bit about something I know that you and I both share a passion for, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion within, well, in general, but specifically, I guess, within our, our clean energy space. So I sort of had a life-changing moment when I met you that day at Panera in Bethesda, <laughs> and I was just setting up Dylan Green, which was you know, the second recruitment agency I was setting up. And I said, if you were me, what kind of recruitment agency? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. And you said, I would have an agency focused solely on diversity. And I said, really? You think there's enough of a demand? This was before, obviously, (laughs) our world turned upside down with Me Too and BLM and so forth. At that time, though, what made you say that to me? 
Well, it's a great question. And it's one that I'd say relates to the mentorship question, which is one of my mentors has been Michelle Moore over at Groundswell. Mm -hmm. And Michelle has been on this diversity inclusion pathway for a long time, including when she was in the White House and the the Obama White House. And I never quite got it. I was like, I don't understand it. Why do you keep talking to me about diversity inclusion? But I respected her so much that I was like, look, I'm going to figure this out because she certainly is smarter than I am on a lot of these things. And What it really comes down to is that we all operate under a social license. And that social license is given to us by the broader public. The reason why we have 100% clean energy standards around the country is because a sufficient number of people in those states believed that it was a good policy and told their legislators it was a good policy. And and then those governors championed it and they passed a law. And if we basically did all the same things wrong, that our predecessors did in the energy sector, and we didn't try to do it better, well, then why would those communities actually be supportive of 100% clean energy? What's in it for them? And I, it totally like resonated with me finally. It took a long time. But it finally resonated with me that we actually have to be inclusive. If we're going to go from $200 billion a year of investment to a trillion dollars a year of investment, which is what we need to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, then we need to make sure that women feel included in what we're doing. We need to make sure that people of color feel included in what we're doing. We need to make sure that Native Americans feel included, that like people should be included. And then, you know, I obviously didn't know that that Me Too or Black Lives Matter or other things were going to happen. But it, but it does make sense that those events and, you know, now movements have led to a reimagining of what the workplace should look like. And there's a lot of CEOs in our space who are saying, hey, wait a second, we want to be on the vanguard of this and not being the last of the party. And it's not easy to find people that are willing to help you recruit people outside of your social circle. And I think it's just so critical for someone to have laid down those markers and and created that groundwork so that you can actually get high quality candidates for every position within your company or your board. How do you think we can encourage companies to hire outside the clean energy industry? How do we convince them to do that? Because as we are growing as an industry and we have more and more jobs and more and more opportunity, we have to let some new folks in. So how do we get companies to do that? It's not an easy thing to do. And I understand it, right? I mean, if you're a small company, 20 people, and you you need to hire a person, I mean, the fact that you're going to like bring in somebody from outside and train them and figure out how to get them up to speed on the trends in our industry and some of the best practices and all that stuff. I mean, and half the people that run these companies with 20 people don't actually understand all these nuances themselves. So they're like, am I really going to bring in somebody from outside of the industry? I mean, part of the reason we bring in so many people from outside the industry now is because we're starting to get a lot of companies with 200 plus employees. And with 200 plus employees, you have professional heads of talent, you have professional onboarding systems, you actually have the ability to take on people from outside of the industry, because you actually take people and training and valuing the people at your company more seriously than just having happy hours every week. And so I think that's what it takes. And so my sense is you'll see a bifurcation for a long time between large companies and small companies. Yeah. Do you think there are certain areas with within these companies that lend themselves to taking talent from other places? For example, perhaps HR or marketing or legal or so forth. 
Well, certainly some of those positions feel less specialized to our industry. And so bringing in sort of that outside perspective of how things have been done well in other sectors is probably useful, right? Marketing for sure. I mean, I don't know that the clean energy industry has ever been known for good marketing (laughs) or HR or legal. I mean, but legal, like, I mean, there's a lot of like technical stuff on tax equity and that kind of stuff. I mean, certainly places like safety, my sense is, is that, you know, there are many industries who do safety way better than we do or cybersecurity or those areas, I think, can be a place where you really can find a lot of talent outside of the clean energy sector, but also like project management. I mean, there's a lot of people who are real experts in project management and the ways in which you use productivity tools to get enhanced project management. What do you think is missing? So what do you think that we need to do as an industry to encourage more DEI in general. So let's let's look at things like students and encouraging students like STEM University to come into our space. Like what what do you think is missing to get this shift that we really need to get? Honestly, it's more enablers like yourself. Like that is our biggest problem because look, it's not that people don't want diversity and inclusion, but I mean, our industry is like every other industry, right? 80% of the businesses that start up in our industry are going to fail for lots of reasons. And our industry is worse than other industries because our industry, the dynamics of the industry changes radically every two years. And if you can't keep up with those changes, then you're sunk. And so I can imagine that diversity and inclusion is like number six on their list. And so if they actually want to get it done, what they really want is to be able to outsource it and be able to say, hey, why don't we just hire this firm? They have a good reputation of diversity and inclusion. Obviously, diversity and inclusion doesn't mean you're going to get candidates that are bad candidates or whatever else. It may mean that you you will have to spend a little bit more time getting to know the candidates because they don't come from your social circle. So you don't immediately have four friends in common, maybe. But I think that being able to outsource it to people like yourself is the, the key to this whole thing, because you got to make it easy for CEOs who are frankly under a lot of pressure to be able to do this. And I think diversity begets diversity. Like once you start to get some diverse people into your organization, because so much of it is your network, which is how we've got into this situation in the first place, it becomes slightly easier as people bring in their more diverse networks. Totally. I I totally agree. But I just think we have to be practical about this thing. I think it's all well and good to say, hey, you know, if they don't make this their top priority, then they're not really being a good CEO or whatever. But you know, for a lot of these folks, it's their own money. It's their own net worth on the line. For most people, the stock that they own and the company that they've started is 90% of their net worth, right? And so like, it's not surprising that they make decisions that are super selfish. And even if those decisions are not in their best interest. What lessons have you learned when hiring around skills and attributes versus experience? Yeah, I think we're very careful about that at Generate. So we have tests and things like that that we do. Because what we find is, is that if you actually really do make the interviewing process fully blind, you find that there's actually a lot of people with extraordinary skills and attributes that can do the job. And that when you actually just go to experience, what you find is, is that the people who had the best connections coming out of college are the ones who had the best experiences. And those happen to be people of privilege. And so part of this is really doing skills and attributes. But the other thing that we've done at Generate is now that we're close to a hundred people, we actually are okay with people not having the full skills and attributes but having a history of being able to learn those skills and attributes. Like part of what we've had to do is to say, 
look, you have gotten a certain level of expertise in this other field. And that makes us believe that you can actually achieve that same level of skill and excellence in this field. Right. And, and we have had to be better at saying, hey, it's going to be a six-month longer ramp up for this candidate. Yeah. But it's important to be giving people a chance and to be more inclusive because what we get out of it is access to a broader network, access to a, a broader group of people who frankly don't even know that Generate exists but will as we bring this other person's network in. And that makes all of the things that we do at Generate richer. We get better deal flow. We get better access to communities, all the things that we need to be successful as a firm. Uh, so my final question is around parenting in a pandemic. So we both have sons. Your son, I think, is five. Yeah. My son is two, and they're both named Dylan. And I know when we spoke, you've been very proud that your wife is very successful in her own right. And I was thinking it would be interesting to hear from you to have two successful career people in the household. How you divvy up responsibility? Like, how does an average day work during this crazy time that we're in? Yeah, it's a good question. And one that I don't know that I have a fantastic answer for. I mean, I do think that invariably she does more than I do. So I think that let's just start there. Part of what I did was I said, hey, let's just not schedule any calls until 10 30, 11, 11 30, because I have a lot more flexibility in the morning because. We have a West Coast power center at Generate. So a lot of the meetings don't really get started until noon. So that's a lot of what I did was push back my start time in the mornings so I could do a lot of the morning stuff. And that then, you know, freed her up to get her focused work time in in the mornings, right? And then and then she did a lot more of the stuff in the afternoon. And then I, I took over bedtime, which can be exhausting, as you know. So, you know, bath and the whole nine yards and bedtime and all those things and and that freed her up, get some more mental space around, you know, being alone for a little while so that she could actually <laughs> gather her own thoughts and rejuvenate. But the reality of the situation is, you know, we're probably on the 70-30 track in terms of what she does versus what I do. And I think as part of that is also acknowledgement of the fact that she's doing that and yeah. being mindful, you know, of the fact that people just need to be a little bit more forgiving in these times. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Is your son doing distant learning? He's uh, October birthday, so he's pre-K. Okay. Um, so it's been a little better because he's in the sort of childcare loophole. He's technically considered childcare and not yeah. school age. And so we've been able to intermittently keep him in in-person school. Oh, that's great. Which has been great because he's a social animal and Zoom yeah. is completely impossible for him. But yeah, no, I think it's been tough. And I think every parent has to do it their own way. But I hope that this experience gives everyone a full understanding of what we've been saying as a society for 20 years, which is that, you know, we do a terrible job of childcare, yelling at people around how they should be employed and how they should do all this stuff and not giving them childcare solutions is really hurting their ability to be their best selves. It's hurting the economy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. This was great. And, you know, thank you so much for your dedication to the great work that you do. I mean, I frankly think that it was fortuitous that we were able to meet up early, but, yeah. but also the fact that you were able to really pivot your business towards diversity and inclusion is just critical because I just don't know how our company, but many other companies would have been able to navigate these waters without, you know, your great leadership. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Greenlight Podcast. Are you looking for your next role in climate tech? Join the latest growing network of clean tech professionals and be the first to know about what industry-leading clean tech companies first post new job openings from development to finance to marketing by checking out our website, dylan-green.com slash latest hyphen jobs. Dylan Green is transforming business through talent. You can also find us on YouTube where we engage with today's top clean energy leaders.